Hello, Frighters! I'm Holland Elise, and this is Fight or Fright. Hey, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of Fight or Fright. I... I kind of have a different layout for today's episode. So in light of the Black Lives Matter movement and everything that's been going on, I kind of just wanted to compile a bunch of different cases that helped with the civil rights movement or showed either police brutality or just just kind of to give people an idea of why people are out there protesting and to show you that things have not changed as much as they should and as much as we think that they have, and we still have a long way to go. And so it's going to be very compiled, small, little definitions of these cases. It's not, I'm not going in depth in all of them. And I encourage you that if one of these speaks to you to look it up even further, but I have like nine different cases and I'm just giving a small summary of each of them. So the one case that I am going to start off with is Dred Scott. Dred Scott was born into slavery, and he was owned by Peter Blow. Once Peter Blow died, Dred Scott was then sold to Dr. John Emerson with his family. Dred Scott had a wife named Harriet, and they were sold to Dr. John Emerson. Emerson moved around a lot and ended up marrying a woman named Irene, and after Emerson died... All of his slaves went to Irene. That's just how things went. It passed in the family. It's horrible. It's atrocious. And Dred Scott asked many times for Irene to let him buy his freedom. But this motherfucking bitch wouldn't let him buy his freedom. And so in 1846, Dred Scott and his wife Harriet filed two separate lawsuits for their freedom. These lawsuits were based on the statute that allowed any person of color to sue for wrongful enslavement and also any person taken to a free territory automatically became free and could not be re-enslaved upon returning to a slave state. And Dred Scott had been in free states. In all of the moving around he did with Dr. Emerson, there was movement into states that were considered free states. But he didn't file this suit in one of those states. The state he was in when he filed this was a slave state, sadly. And I could go into a whole rant on slavery and fucking pretending we own people. The only way I can relate to that is because women were also thought of as property for a long time but not to the extent that that was, and it's horrible, and I could say so many things, but Dredd and Harriet Scott were unable to read or write, so they had to rely on help from their church, abolitionists, and ironically, the the Blow family, the family that owned them first before Dr. Emerson bought the Scott family, They were even on his side. 
during this lawsuit. So in January of 1850, the Scots actually ended up winning their freedom, but fucking Irene appealed it and they ended up losing the appeal and were placed back into slavery. In 1854, Dred Scott appealed the case to the Supreme Court of the U.S., the highest court in the land. And the hearing started on February 11th, 1856 for that Supreme Court hearing. In 1854, Dred Scott appealed his case to the motherfucking Supreme Court, the highest court in the land, and they started hearing it on February 11th, 1856. This case garnered widespread notoriety, and it especially had a huge amount of support from the abolitionists. But on March 6th, 1857, the horrible, dreadful, disgusting Dred Scott decision came down. And this decision basically said people of African descent, free or slave, were not United States citizens and therefore had no right to sue in federal court. In addition, it was written that the Fifth Amendment protected slave owner rights because slaves were their legal property. Fuck the person that made that decision. I'm just going to say it. That is messed up. Ugh. This this will get into the same thing that I said during my little like personal message. But like if you were to open us up on the inside and that's all you could see, we would all fucking look the same. So it makes me so mad that based on the color of your skin, you can be told that basically you are property. You're not a human. And that's fucked up. So that's a little bit on the Dred Scott case. And if you want to, I urge and encourage you to look up more. But the next case that I researched was Recy Taylor. I hope I'm saying that right, and I'm sorry if I'm not. It's R-E-C-Y Taylor. On September 3rd, 1944, Recy was walking home from church, and a man named Herbert Lovett accused her of When I was doing research, it was something about like a younger white boy was cut or something and he wrongfully accused her of it, even though there was no evidence she had done anything. But either way, Reese was forced into his car at gunpoint and was driven to a remote area where Herbert Lovett and six other men gang raped her. While raping her, Herbert told her to act like she did with her husband or he would slit her throat. She was a mom. She was married. She was young. It's horrifying what happened to this woman. And pretty much right when she got in the car, this incident was reported because Reese was with a friend that day and they saw this occur and it was found out that the car belonged to a man named Hugo Wilson, who was one of those seven men. None of the men were arrested, and Wilson, who was driving the car and the friend identified that it was his car, was put with a slap on the wrist and a small fine that he could easily pay. So the first grand jury was held on October 3rd and 4th in 1944. It was quite obviously at that time, an all-white male jury. So none of the men were arrested. 
The police didn't do a lineup for Reese so that she could identify any of them in the right amount of time. And in the end, the grand jury deliberated for only five fucking minutes and dismissed the case. Reese, for being brave and speaking up and trying to get justice for the gang rape that occurred, got death threats and her house was firebombed in order to intimidate her. The NAACP and other organizations were able to come together and actually a familiar name is going to come up. The NAACP sent their best investigator, Rosa Parks, to help with the investigation and to help Reese and try and help her stay safe because she was she had so many threats. So the governor at the time, Governor Sparks, investigated the incident, but the officer that came to the scene lied and said that the men were arrested and that Wilson wasn't just let go with a slap on the wrist and a bit of a fine. He was held on bail. Oh, my God. But then the officer also spoke to Reese's He basically slandered her name and called her a whore and said that she had venereal diseases and that the men under investigation, they claimed that she was a sex worker, so it was consensual. Obviously, all of this was a lie. She was not a sex worker. She did not have venereal diseases from anything I could find in my research. All of this was a lie, but it was used in the second grand jury and they refused again to issue any indictments because these lies about who she was came up in that grand jury testimony. The community was outraged by this outcome and that the state wouldn't even bring indictments on the kidnapping. I mean, they took her. Like, the state wouldn't even bring up anything on... This was basically, they're like, uh, we tried. It's just so fucked up. And for the rest of her life, Reese, she ended up moving to Florida eventually, but she was treated horribly because of how they portrayed her, saying basically that she was a sex worker and that she was a whore, that just all of that stuff just dragged her name through the mud. I mean, it's the 1940s. Obviously, that would be a really bad thing to be accused of when there was no merit and all of it was a fucking lie. I'm getting worked up, but this this case works me up the most. It's the most fucked up. And now the next case is Emmett Till. Emmett Till was the child of Mammy Bradley. By the way, she's a fucking badass. And in a little bit, you'll hear why. But um, his mom was Mammy Bradley and his father was Lewis Till. He didn't really know his father because his parents separated when he was like one years old and his father went to serve in the World War. But Mammy was notified just passingly that he was executed while serving in Italy for willful misconduct. And I'm not going to go fully into this, but I've heard podcasts and have read up on the Emmett Till case before And from what I've found, there's also like a suspicious set of circumstances in the death of his father and how he why why he was executed and how he was executed. So 
Other than that, um, Mammy Bradley, she's my woman. She is awesome, badass, just so cool. She was definitely before her time, and she was amazing both academically and professionally. She was the fourth black student to graduate from a predominantly white Argo Community High School in Chicago. And on top of that, she was the first black woman to make the honor roll at that school. So Emmett grew up on the south side of Chicago. It was a predominantly black neighborhood. So there was a lot of black black owned businesses, black salons, black convenience stores. Like it was just predominantly an area where black shop owners had their run of the land. And so he really didn't have to grow up dealing with racism to the extent that like people in the South did at that time. And he was described by everyone that knew him as he was funny, he was a jokester, and he was all around a good kid. I mean, his mom was a single mom working long hours with the Air Force doing like confidential work. And he told her that while she was working to make the money, he would take care of everything else. He would cook, do laundry, and do all of the other household chores just so that things could be easier for his mom. It makes me wanna cry just knowing what happens, that like, this is what he, this is how he was. And so while he was really young, he contracted polio. I think what I saw was he was like five years old. He made a full recovery and he ended up being fine. The only thing that kind of stuck with him after this illness was a bit of a stutter that he got. And he kind of, from what I've heard, had like a little whistle to some of the words that he used. And Emmett's uncle, Mo's right, came up to Chicago just to visit Mammy and Emmett and the rest of the family that lived in the Chicago area. And when Mose was going to go back to Mississippi, Emmett's cousin Wheeler Parker was going to be accompanying him. And Emmett really wanted to see his cousins. And he begged and begged his mom incessantly, just like any kid does when they have something on their mind. Mammy was super nervous because she knew what it was like. And she even tried to tempt him by saying, like, come with me to Tulsa, Oklahoma. I'll teach you how to drive on, like, the deserted roads that are on the way to Tulsa. But he had it in his mind that he wanted to go to Money, Mississippi with Wheeler and Mose and see his cousins. Eventually... His mom reluctantly agreed and basically gave him that speech about Mississippi isn't like what it is here. And she told him to be careful and kind of was like, you need to act a certain way. So the events allegedly goes as follow because Emmett obviously can't fucking speak for himself because he was silenced. But from what the testimony of the white people in this situation. On August 24th, 1955, he was with his cousins and he was apparently bragging about how he had a white girlfriend back in Chicago. Due to his joking nature, his cousins didn't take him seriously at all, but they did dare him to ask out the white woman, Carolyn Bryant, who was sitting behind the register at the, at the convenience store. He went in, he bought candy, and apparently he was heard saying, bye baby. 
She later claimed that while he was in the store, he had grabbed her, made sexual advances, and that he whistled at her. But like I said, the whistling could have just happened because there were some things that he said that came out like a whistle because of the stuttering and because of the effects. Also, just hammer it in there. He's a 13-year-old boy. Oh, yeah. (laughs) He's also a fucking 13-year-old boy who's a jokester and has grown up basically being able to do what he wanted because the racism in a black neighborhood that he stayed in in Chicago was a lot different than Mississippi. Very different. And Carolyn's husband came home a few days later. He was pissed at the rumors that he heard. He was so angry. And with his half-brother, J.W. Millam, he went to Moe Wright's house. And it was the early morning of August 28th, 1955. So like four days after the actual occurrence happened. And he demanded that Emmett come with him despite all of the pleas from the Wright family and everyone that was in that home, the men forced Emmett into their car and they took him to the Tallahatchie River and made him take off his clothes. Once he took off his clothes, this is going to get graphic. I'm I'm sorry, this is just, this is what happened to him. They beat him, gouged out his eyes, shot him in the head and attached him to a cotton gin fan with barbed wire and threw him in the river. Emmett was found three days later, and he was only identifiable by a initialed ring that he owned. Mammy Bradley demanded that Emmett would be brought back to Chicago, despite the police in Money, Mississippi, wanting to bury the body and take care of the situation quickly. She was not having it. And she held an open casket funeral so that everyone could see what the racists in Mississippi had done to her only son. An African-American magazine at the time called Jet published the photos, which garnered mainstream media attention to what was going on and basically brought attention to the like horrific things that happened under the Jim Crow laws. And two weeks after Emmett's burial, Millam and Bryant were on trial at a segregated courthouse in Sumner, Mississippi. A few witnesses, including Emmett's uncle, identified the defendants as the people that took Emmett. But on September 23rd, 1955, the all-white jury deliberated for less than an hour and found the men not guilty because apparently the state didn't prove to them beyond a reasonable doubt that the body was Emmett's. So many people were outraged by this decision and upset at the state's decision not to indict the men on kidnapping. I'm sorry. The kidnapping thing with Reese was wrong. That was with this. That was with this case. I misread that. But yeah, so they were very upset that they at least didn't try to indict the men on kidnapping. And to just even worse than anything else is that later Caroline Bryant recanted her testimony and said that nothing that boy could ever do would justify what happened to him. Too little, too late. Like that's, it's so messed up that like you, you come out after the kid has already been killed because of what you said. And you're like, yeah, so what I was saying wasn't true. Like 
this this 13-year-old kid is dead for something that like possibly didn't not even possibly probably didn't even happen in the way that they say that it happened. So now, moving on, on September 15th, 1963, a bomb went off right before the service at the 16th Street Baptist Church. It was a predominantly black congregation and many civil rights leaders held meetings at the 16th Street Church. On this morning, there were four girls in the girls' restroom. These girls were the only four fatalities because the restroom was right next to the steps that the bomb was placed under. The women were Addie Mae Collins, Cynthia Wesley, Carol Robertson, and Carol Denise McNair. On top of these four fatalities, there were just so many people that were injured in this bombing. The bomb was purposefully placed under the stairs of the church. And like I said, that just happened to be next to the girls' bathroom where these women, where these little girls were getting ready for like, I think it was like a singing, like they were singing or they had something that they were doing at the beginning of the service. So these girls were getting ready. The investigation became focused on a KKK splinter group called the Cahaba Boys. These motherfuckers felt that the KKK didn't hold enough clout because the blacks in the community had been getting too many concessions for their liking at this time. So in 1963, this group ended up breaking away from the KKK to start the Cahaba Boys just motherfuckers. Robert Chambliss was questioned on September 26, 1963 for the bombing at the church, and he was indicted on the 29th of September. It was believed that Chambliss was the ringleader, but he had four other friends that assisted him, and those men were also implicated. I suggest that you look up more information on that. Like I said, I'm just doing like minor summaries of all these things, but these are all really important things that you should know about. And I'm only scratching the surface on all of these topics. So next, I'm going to talk about Lewis Allen. On September 25th, 1961, Lewis Allen witnessed the murder of a NAACP member named Herbert Lee. During the coroner's inquest, Lewis Allen lied on the stand and exonerated E.H. Hurst, who was the murderer of Herbert Lee. He lied on the stand because, like so many at this time, he was afraid for his life and the repercussions that could occur if he told the truth. He discussed what actually happened that day to a man named Julian Bond. Julian told him that he needed to talk to the FBI and tell them what happened. But when Allen asked the for the FBI to protect him so that he could be safe and his family could be safe, the FBI went to the Justice Department and they did not grant Lewis Allen any protection. So when the next trial came around, Lewis Allen lied again on the stand for the same reason he did the first time, because he was afraid. And he told the same story as he told on the stand the first time. Lewis Allen, like I said, didn't cooperate with the FBI, but there were rumors about him speaking to them that ran ran wild in the white community of Liberty, Mississippi. 
Lewis Allen was shunned and the community ended up no longer using his logging company. So he was also financially like not doing very well because of this. And then in 1962, he went to try and register to vote and he and his friends were shot at. He wasn't killed, but he was threatened and he was told to leave Liberty. The FBI, when Allen went to complain and bring this to their attention, referred Allen to Sheriff Jones because they felt it was not their jurisdiction. But the FBI had received a memo in 1961 saying that Sheriff Jones was one of the men that was in on a plot to kill Lewis Allen. At some point, Allen was arrested, and when he was released from jail, he filed a complaint against Sheriff Jones. But at this time, the Black community wasn't registered to vote and unable to serve on juries, so the case was dismissed very quickly. He didn't leave Liberty even though he wanted to, and his life was very tough there because of his mother and father. They were getting up in age, they needed his help, he couldn't leave. But when his mom died in January of 1964, he was getting the hell out of Liberty. But the night before he was supposed to leave on January 31st, 1964, he was shot twice in the head with a shotgun. This happened at the edge of his property. And for a long time, and especially at that time, there was no investigation But in 1994, Plater Robinson of Tulane University, he got the case file and did his own investigation. His research pointed to Sheriff Jones being the killer. And he found a man named Alfred Knox, who was a preacher in Liberty. And he said that Sheriff Jones recruited his son-in-law, Archie Weatherspoon, for the murder of Allen. But Archie refused full out to pull the trigger. So Sheriff Jones ended up pulling the trigger himself. This is all speculation because Knox and Weatherspoon are now deceased, both of them. So this isn't verified, but it is one of the theories and it is one of the likely theories. So next, the assassination of Martin Luther King. He was in the Lorraine Motel in Memphis, Tennessee. Obviously, as most people know, Martin Luther King was a civil rights leader and a Christian minister. He was staying at the motel with his friend and colleague, Reverend Ralph Abernathy. They stayed in room 36, and Abernathy later would joke that, like, they were in that room so much that it was called the King Abernathy Suite because they always stayed in that room. Martin Luther King Jr. walked out onto the balcony at 6.01 p.m. and was struck in the face by a bullet regarding his work for the civil rights movement. A witness saw a man that was later believed to be James Earl Ray fleeing the scene. This started a worldwide manhunt, and eventually James Earl Ray was arrested in the London Heathrow Airport. The FBI was assigned to investigate the death, But J. Edgar Hoover had previously been known to try and undermine MLK Jr.'s reputation. They said they would attempt to find the culprits, but the documents are classified. The information pertaining to the investigation is classified and unavailable to the public, and it won't be available for seven more years until 2020 at the earliest. In 2010, they tried to fight this, 
just like the JFK assassination files, they tried to fight so that the files pertaining to the investigation to Martin Luther King Jr.'s death could become available to the public. But this was not passed. And so at the earliest, this information can be released at 2027. So there's not much to be known about the assassination because everything's classified. But we know that he was shot and it was obviously to do with things like the the march in Washington, D.C., Selma, just all of his rights, having all of his attempts to gain notoriety for the civil rights movement. So the ones I've talked about so far are more in in the past. They're from like the 1800s to the 1960s. But now I'm going to talk about more recent cases. So I'm going to start with the most recent cases. I'm going to start with Eric Gardner. On July 17th, 2014, Officer Daniel Pantaleo arrests Eric Gardner because it was believed that Eric was selling untaxed cigarettes on the streets of Staten Island, New York. Staten Island, not Staten Island. Pantaleo and the other officers tried to say that Eric Gardner was resisting arrest, and that is why they ended up putting him in a chokehold. Onlookers were taking videos and caught the interaction on camera, and you can hear Gardner say that he can't breathe. He had asthma and many other things that would just make it so much shorter if someone's cutting off your airway. Like if you have asthma, you can't like it's even shorter than if you didn't like it's really, really bad. But he was saying that he couldn't breathe. The medical examiner eventually determined that the chokehold caused the death. They spoke to his asthma and other health issues, but said that it wasn't the direct cause of his death. Patrick Lynch from the Police Benevolent Association, fuck this guy, said that Pantaleo used a seatbelt maneuver and that it was the life-saving procedures that caused the neck compressions. Like, fuck this guy. On December 3rd, 2014, a grand jury found that there was no probable cause to bring charges against Officer Pantaleo. The decision caused protests to start, and rightfully so, because if it's caught on camera and you can see what's going on and someone is saying that they can't breathe and you have that on video, like there's direct evidence, how can a grand jury not see but I know there's a lot more to the law that goes into things than me. So like, then I know, so um, I, can't, I can't speak to it. But anyway, protests started. The U.S. Attorney General at the time, Eric Holden, said that there was going to be an investigation regarding the violation of Eric Gardner's civil rights. And on July 16th, 2018, the New York Police Department said it would allow for disciplinary actions against Pantaleo to proceed because... They were losing patience with the federal authorities' indecision. So finally, on August 19th, 2019, the New York Police Commissioner, James O'Neill, came out and announced that Pantaleo would be fired and would have no pension. That motherfucker Patrick Lynch made a statement saying that he was not happy. And I'm pretty sure it even said angry, but don't quote me on that. But he wasn't happy about the department's decision to fire Pantaleo. Then there's Freddie Gray. And I actually 
really remember this case because I was in Baltimore at this time. I was going to Towson University. I was weeks from graduating when he died. I remember having graduation dinner planned and there was, because there's only so many restaurants that people go to that are like nice places in the area. I I remember that we had reservations at a really nice restaurant to celebrate my graduation. And due to riots and protests, things were on fire, glass for different different shops was being broken. People were being beaten up. It was a, and I'm not saying anything about protesters. I am a white woman in America. Like I can't, as you can see, I can talk to the summary of things that have happened, but I cannot speak to what it is like to be a black person. So I'm just saying that I remember it for that reason. And I remember the deaths. And I remember the the protests, the the civil disrest that happened after the Freddie Gray case. So on April 19th, 2015, two men that were wearing Baltimore police labels, they were in yellow, the article said, but they had like police labels. They were seen pinning a black man that would later be identified as Freddie Gray to the ground. And this was seen by onlookers. Court documents stated that Gray had fled unprovoked when he noticed the police. And the documents also said that he was arrested without force or incident. Sorry, if someone dies and you're pinning them to the ground, that's not without force. Like, hmm. Anyway, we'll get into that with Breonna Taylor, too. Anyway, so they said that it was without force or incident. Marilyn Mosby is someone that was like a prosecutor at the time. And she later got in a lot of trouble for some of the things she did. I just glanced and saw that she got in trouble, but I didn't really see why or look into it that much. But she stated that Freddie Gray was illegally arrested. And she also said that he was assaulted for a false accusation. He was originally stopped for the running, but then they it's said that they found an illegal switchblade and the switchblade was found clipped to his pants. And Marilyn Mosby said that the knife was legal and that even if it wasn't, like him running is not justification for an arrest. Even the police commissioner, Anthony Batts, said he didn't understand why Freddie Gray was stopped because there's no law against running. And along these same lines, Billy Murphy, who was a lawyer for Freddie's family, said that running while black is not probable cause. And even if he did have a switchblade on his person, they didn't have probable cause to start chasing him. So Freddie Gray asked for his inhaler and for medical attention. The officers refused. And even before they put him in the van, the officers had Gray in a tactical hold. He was not restrained with a seatbelt while he was in the van, which is also against police policy. And the prosecutors announced that they were gonna go forward with charges, but the first jury couldn't reach a verdict. As I spoke to a little bit from my experience, this caused protests and riots in Baltimore because How could no verdict be reached? And the second officer was acquitted. 
So basically saying no one did anything wrong. It's just so fucked up that someone can die in police custody while asking multiple times for medical attention. And I mean, you kind of see with all of the chokehold stuff, you see like Freddie Gray needed an inhaler. George Floyd, he like he had some problems, too, with with his lungs and the ability to breathe. Like Eric Garner, he had asthma. Like if someone is saying they can't breathe, fucking stop what you're doing. It's just so messed up. So the next case I'm going to talk about is Botham Jean. On September 6th, 2018, Amber Geiger, who was a patrol officer with the Dallas Police Department was going home after what she says was just a long, tiring day at work. She lived on the third floor, but she was texting her boyfriend while she was on her way home. Geiger lived on the third floor and she was texting her boyfriend who was married and her partner. And so just a fucking no-no to begin with. But she ended up going to the fourth floor instead of the third floor. She went to the room that would have been hers because Botham Jean lived right above her. And she saw that the door was ajar. And she believed that there was a robber or someone that was intruding inside her place. She believed Botham Jean, who was the actual owner of the apartment and 25 was the intruder and shot him when he was unarmed and just having a relaxing evening and heard someone come into his place and stood up. But, and I was talking to my roommate about this, it was his place. Even if he was armed, someone was breaking in to his apartment. So even if he was armed, I don't know why all of these articles are saying like, he was unarmed, like, and I know to put, I know you can't, you should put significance on that, but it wouldn't matter if he wasn't. Stand your ground laws, castle doctrine, those things allow him to, if he thinks that he is in immediate danger, to protect himself. And someone was coming into his place, but he wasn't armed. And Amber was a police officer and was armed and she shot him for no reason. The family believed that in order to help Amber and help one of their own, that the the police department was smearing Botham's name. They talked about finding marijuana and things like that in his apartment. And on November 30th, 2018, Amber Geiger was indicted on murder charges. The prosecutors alleged that criminal intent was shown because she was distracted while talking to her married boyfriend and her partner. The layout of the floors is the same, but from what I've heard when I've heard things about this, the colors on the floor are different. Like the wall colors are not the same. So she was so distracted that she couldn't even notice that the color that she normally sees on her floor was not the same. But also on top of that, As an officer, she should know to not enter the apartment or the premises if she believes there's an intruder and that she should call for backup. The police department was fucking two blocks away. 
hey, she was already talking to another cop. For sure. She was already talking to her partner, her boyfriend, another cop who was married. Just be like, hey, I think someone's in my place. But the precinct was two fucking blocks away. So the jury deliberated for six hours. They did end up reaching a murder verdict. But after one hour, the jury sentenced her to only 10 years. And Amber's attorneys, obviously, just like almost anyone would, uh, in October of 2019, filed a notice to appeal. I could not refine. I couldn't find the result of that notice to appeal, but that was also 2019 and October of 2019. It's only 2020. I that's that's not unreasonable to me. Lost court stuff takes forever. But something interesting that I found was two weird things happened to the two witnesses for the prosecution. There was one witness that went by the name Bunny. Bunny was harassed and threatened because of video she had and because she was a witness. She was fired from her job because of a absorbent amount of calls saying that she was radical and anti-police. Her employer couldn't handle the calls anymore, so they let her go. Then Joshua Brown, who was another witness and was Botham Jean's neighbor, was shot in the parking lot of an apartment building that he moved to after Botham's death. The Dallas Police Department made a statement saying that this was a drug deal gone bad. And they said that they found a lot of drugs at his place and all of that. So this is a potential. It's just really weird that the two prosecuting witnesses had something happen to them. But... I have a tinfoil hat. I'm not going to go into all of that. But what I found was Botham's family like gave Amber hugs and so did the judge. And they all said that they forgave her. But Botham's father did say as much as he does forgive her, he wished that she received a stiffer sentence, which is reasonable because she got 10 years. And if the appeal goes through, like if she wins the appeal, she could get even less. Like, I don't know what would happen with that because I couldn't find the exact details of that appeal. So then on March 23rd, 2020, Brianna Taylor was in Louisville and police forced entry into the home of Brianna and her boyfriend, Kenneth Walker. The couple believed that the people were intruders trying to force their way into the home. Kenneth Walker had a gun that he owned legally and was trying to defend him from what they thought were intruders. It was actually the police who were serving a no-knock warrant on the home. So when Kenneth saw, when they saw Kenneth had a gun, they started shooting and Brianna was shot eight times. These officers were plain clothed narcotics officers and they did not announce that they were police, which is why they were so afraid. They weren't wearing uniforms. They were in plain clothes and they did not announce themselves. And recently a nearly blank incident report came out and it said that there were no injuries, even though Brianna Taylor was shot eight times, I would constitute that as an injury, especially since she's dead. And they checked that they did not force entry into the home. The only thing that they released on this report was the time, date, 
case number, victim's name, and the officer's names. The officers were Sergeant John Mattingly, Miles Cosgrove, and Brett Hankison. These officers have been placed on administrative reassignment, but no charges have been brought regarding Brianna's death. Mayor Fisher says that the reason for there being no charges and them not being fired is that due to a contract between the police department and the city, officers can't be fired until the investigation is fully finished. So it seems from from that that he's, one, trying to cover his ass, but also trying to say that right now, until the investigation is done, we can't even make a decision. Once they complete the investigation, then we can make our decision on what's going to happen. But the FBI has now become involved and the family is really happy about this. One good thing to come out of this tragic incident was Brianna's law, which was passed. And this law bans the use of no-knock warrants. Brianna's mother said about this law, I'm just going to say, Brianna, that's all that she wanted to do was save lives. So with this law, she will continue to get to do that, which is heartbreaking and so sad. And I mean, every one of these stories that I'm telling is very heartbreaking. And then obviously, if I'm going to be talking about all of this stuff, I am going to finally end on George Floyd. On May 25th, 2020, in Minneapolis, Minnesota, George Floyd was taken into police custody. Police were called when an employee believed that the money Floyd used to buy cigarettes was counterfeit, and Floyd refused to give the cigarettes back. Officer Derek Chauvin put his knee to George Floyd's neck while trying to arrest him. He kept his knee on George Floyd's neck for eight minutes and 46 seconds. The officers with Chauvin further restrained George Floyd and stopped onlookers from intervening in the situation. George Floyd kept telling officers that he couldn't breathe, and the onlookers got video of this whole incident. The autopsy classified this as a homicide and said that fentanyl and methamphetamines contributed but were not the cause of this death. Officer Derek Chauvin tried to get a plea deal, and his bail was set at $1.23 million. He was originally charged with third-degree murder and second-degree manslaughter. The charges were became higher eventually, and it turned into second-degree murder and second-degree manslaughter. From what I know in the very basic of basic of law terminology, This basically means that he did kill him, but it wasn't premeditated. So basically what these charges mean with the second degree murder and manslaughter is that both of them are saying that there wasn't intent to kill him. They didn't go into the situations thinking that they were going to kill George Floyd, but George Floyd did die basically due to negligence. The third degree basically says there's no fault, but second degree from what I saw adds a little bit more fault and that there was a set of circumstances that occurred that caused the death, but it wasn't premeditated and wasn't, they didn't go into the situation thinking that. So officer Thomas Lane, officer J. Alexander Kung and Tao Tao, I don't know if that's how you say their names. I really don't give a fuck. Um, 
They were all charged with aiding and abetting second degree murder and manslaughter. From what I actually saw in a news article while I was researching this, Chavin could still receive full pension. He's still eligible for that. I fucking hope this changes because that's just fucking messed up. But what I want to end by in saying this and why I did a summary of all these cases is if you look from the first case that I did of Dred Scott to George Floyd now, like if you think about it, we one haven't come as far as we should have in all of this time. And I'm hoping that it will show you why, why people are protesting, why people are so fucking done with everything that's going on. They're fed up with systematic racism. They're fed up with being treated like the like they don't matter because the color of their skin, which is fucked up. I mean, one of the things that really got to me is John Boyega's is his speech that he gave at one of the London protests saying, talking about having to be reminded every day that his race doesn't matter. And it's fucked up, but it is true. I mean, just today I got an alert about how cops in Atlanta shot another person. Like, it's not stopping. And the reason that people are protesting is because there needs to be a change. When women wanted the right to vote, they marched, they protested. When, like, that is how you get shit done. And there is a difference between looters slash rioters and protesters. There is a huge difference in what those people are doing, the ends that they're trying to come to, it's not the same. A protester and a rioter is different. And the people that are protesting are just trying to have basic human rights. Like in the constitution, all men should be created equal. And it is fucked up that we still haven't figured that the fuck out and that shit like this is still going on. So that's why I wanted to do this episode of a bunch of summaries of cases throughout the years so that you can kind of educate yourself and see that things need to change. They're not as good as we think it is. And we need to do something about it because black lives matter. Yes, all lives matter, but you're fucking stupid if at this point you can't admit that black lives are the ones that are being, they, they are our brothers, they are our friends, they are our neighbors, and they are being gunned down. And that's fucked up. And so saying black lives matter is like basically saying there's all these houses, but this house is on fire, but all the houses matter. Yeah, but this one is fucking on fire right now, so we need to take care of that situation. Like, if you can't see that Black Lives Matter isn't saying that all lives don't, saying that every other life doesn't matter, that is not what it's saying. It's saying that Black lives in this moment are the ones that are in danger from police, from just being Black. And that's fucked up and it needs to stop. So I hope that with this episode, you can, I know it's a very much a downer episode, but with everything that's going on, I thought that people should 
understand and see that through the years, there's evidence of all of this systematic racism and putting people down based on the color of their skin. And it hasn't changed. We can believe things have changed all we want. It hasn't. Not to the extent that it needs to. And so I stand with the Black community. I stand with the people who are protesting, who want a change because a change needs to happen. I'm just going to end this episode with that and say that if you enjoyed this episode, if you learned something, if you have any questions or you want to talk to me, I am on Instagram and Facebook at Fight or Fright Pod. I'm on Twitter at Fight Fright Pod. And my email, if anyone in the Black community has anything to say to me, I am listening. I know I'm not perfect. I am trying to educate myself as much as I can, but I know I also have a long way to go. And it is not your job to teach me anything, but if you have something to say to me, I am listening and I want you to know that. And you can email me at fightorfrightpod at gmail.com. Next week, I'm going to try and do a bit of a lighter episode, but I thought that in this time, this was super important to give a timeline of different things that happened. So I'll see you next week and reach out to me on social media. Bye, guys. Thanks for joining me for another episode of Fight or Fright. You can find me on Instagram and Facebook at Fight or Fright Pod and on Gmail at fightorfrightpod at gmail.com. Twitter is the only one that's a little bit different in there, and that's at Fight Fright Pod. And if you enjoyed this episode, I would really appreciate it, and it would really help me if you rate and review on Apple Podcasts. Even just spreading the word to family, friends, people you know that enjoy true crime, mysteries, paranormal, all of that kind of stuff. And this is Holland, and I'll see you next week when I tell you another crazy story. And remember, you don't have to fight this fright.